Welcome to the 440th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thank you for listening. Well, I'm recovering from the Silver Rush 50, feeling pretty good. Um, out with our new dog, 3-0. That's 3-0, named after Steph Curry, uh, number 30. Um, he is our new German Shepherd rescue. Uh, he was repossessed from our... Um, breeder that we have from uh, some people that wasn't that great of a fit for him. So he is starting to come along nicely into our house. He and Sophie are getting along well. And so we are, I'm walking 3-0 and we're actually learning to walk, run, and it's progressing nicely. Um, if you've had a large dog, uh, you know that People look at you differently when you're you know, when you're walking and running with a large dog. Like your dog's going to eat their dog, um, but the reality of it is, the little dogs are usually ahead of their owner on a retractable leash, barking at your dog, and rightly so because they see a big dog. But nevertheless, it doesn't help when a big dog is learning to walk nicely on a leash. But anyway, we actually go for that kind of um, situation so that he can learn to not be reactive and stay on my side. And part of learning to run with a dog is they have to walk nicely first and not cross over. I've had my share of tumbles in the past with dogs that uh, you get a little cocky or you think everything's okay and you forget about where they are and the next thing you know you're crossing paths and you're on the ground. So... Um, that's working out good, and so we're actually starting to run-walk. He was in a situation where he didn't have a whole lot of exercise, so even though he's just not quite one and a half, he's not in that good of running shape, so to speak. So um, so we run-walk, and uh, it's, it's, it's going pretty good. Um, he, um, like I said, he's, he's starting to learn patterns and, and not be quite... Um, so jittery, so to speak, when he sees other, other dogs. It didn't take long uh, to get over the Silver Rush 50, and past weekend we signed up for another race. We actually signed up for a 100K in Texas called the Dana Peak 100K, which 100K is 62.5 miles for those of you that um, don't convert metrics. So that'll be in um, near... Uh, between Waco and Austin, I believe, and, and or no, I'm sorry, Waco and Dallas area. Um, so some rocky terrain, not not altitude, obviously, but something to train for. So we have our swim run in November, this 100K in October. So not too much time off before we start having to ramp up. And I think I'll get the tire back out and um, you know get the other things going. My back is doing well. I'm continuing on the back program. Uh, so a lot of core core training, especially when uh, the horizon is to do something longer. So that's where we are. Uh, this past weekend, uh, we watched the Hard Rock 100-mile race on YouTube. They had a live stream and actually followed it on and off from Friday evening to Sunday mid-morning to the last finishers. So some people finished Saturday afternoon, the winners, and then the Average Joe's the last guy finished, I, I believe, at um, 
Uh, I don't know if it was 42 hours or, or what, what it was, uh, was the last finisher. But the oldest finishers, uh, oldest two finishers were actually women. So um, that was kind of fun to watch. And I got to tell you, when they finished, they, they looked good. And this, this was an incredible terrain. The Hard Rock 100 is in Silverton, Colorado. So the mountains are higher than they are in Leadville or, or more treacherous, so to speak. So there were some tough people doing those. They went through snow, climbed up ice, down rocky terrains. No, I'm not signing up for it. Um, but it was quite inspirational to watch. I always end up finding the oldest people in the race, and I you know, root for them. And of course, you want to see who's coming in and how they look and everything. But I, I got to tell you, man, when they came in, there's a spring in their step, and everybody was very, very happy. Today, I want to pull together um, three or four different topics um, that I think all have something in common. Um, one is um, Donade, uh, the new Alzheimer's drug, Donanemad, for Alzheimer's disease, um, and who might benefit and who might be harmed. Um, also, want to look at a study that looks at muscle fatigue and how it affects our cardiorespiratory response and performance. Uh, think long term, long endurance events. What stops you? What tell? What what actually is causing you to hit the wall? And then cardiorespiratory fitness and how it's linked to cancer risk and mortality. So I think um, I can link all three of those uh, together and um, kind of come up with uh, some a plan that that might help us all. So first off, donatumab is a monoclonal antibody therapy that is supposed to decrease the amyloid and tau proteins that are deposited into the brain, which is thought to be correlated with Alzheimer's. So for people to be able to become eligible for this um, medication, they have to have a specialized PET scan that's not available everywhere to look for these plaques to see if they were, you know, would be candidates. And this is an infusion. Um, you have to monitor because of the side effects, and this was a phase three trial, and it was published in the Journal of American Medical Association with 1,736 patients. One of the drawbacks was that 91.5% were whites, um, white people. They had, so there's not a lot of um, diversity in the group. The patients enrolled had mild cognitive impairments and mild dementia, but they did have the tau and amyloid plaques. And they looked at the amount of tau uh, levels at baseline uh, and then at follow-up. Out of the patients that were studied, 1,182 had low levels of plaques and 554 had high levels of plaques in the beginning. So they followed them along. And by the end of the study, um, both groups had shown a decrease in tau plaques but the clinical and symptom improvement of Alzheimer's, the memory impairment, cognitive dysfunction, only mildly improved. So at the end of 76 weeks, which was the end of the trial, 80% of the plaques had cleared on the PET scan follow-up, um, but all the patients had continued decline in their cognition. The people with the less um, or the mildest dementia had the less worsening and probably delayed things by four months. So the best response came in people that had the lowest level of tau proteins, and the worst was the people that had two genes for ApoE4. 
And in the past, I've talked about the APOE4 gene. Um, it markedly increases your risk for Alzheimer's if you have both genes, uh, two genes for it. Um, but ironically, Nigerians have a lot of uh, APOE4s, but they have a very low incidence of Alzheimer's. Uh, but again, this study did not look at um, uh, black people, so uh, it would have been interesting to look, especially um, if patients with uh, um, you know, Nigerians would it would have made a difference at all? I don't know. The safety risk, however, for this drug are significant. Um, there were three deaths from brain bleeding. Um, there was a lot of brain swelling and ventricular size. So you have ventricles that are fluid filled with cerebrospinal fluid in your head, and when people have Parkinson's, they can swell. Um, uh, when people have um, uh, abnormal gait and, and motor function, um, they can have um, swelling of these ventricles. So, you know, that could also be associated down the road with worsening gaits and fall risk as well. That wasn't looked at. Um, people had abnormal images, 37% uh, versus 15% um, in the group. So 37% of people actually had abnormal um, brain swelling or ventricular size. An increased amount, the people that had APOE4 had worse, 40% of those people had abnormal CT scans. There were 26.8% uh, of the people had micro hemorrhages versus 12.5% in the control group. The other thing that was concerning is that 80% of the people that were screened for this study were excluded, and, and there's no... Um, there's no documentation of why they were excluded and who they were and what kind of symptoms they had. And again, um, the other thing is you need frequent screening, a specialized MRI. So it limits the availability of this drug. One, um, again, it may help in people that have mild disease that are white. We don't know anything about anybody else. Um, you'd have to be in an area where you can get these scans, which are expensive. The drug is expensive. Medicare is still fighting over whether they should uh, reimburse it. A lot of that um, and, and what they have that are the, the reimbursement at this point, um, if you've dealt with a donut hole, is that, you know, they're going to charge retail to Medicare and then people will be in the donut hole very quick. So that could put a lot of restraint on people's ability to be able to afford it. But again, the you know, the benefit versus risk versus cost are still very much there. Um, yes, it, it helped people. And you may say, well, if you have early disease, would it help? Perhaps. Um, but early people are highly, more highly functional, and you'd hate to have something bad happen to somebody that just had a little bit of cognitive impairment. So if you have somebody that's really functioning in society but has some memory loss and has tau, and you give them the drug and they bleed, that wouldn't be a very good thing. The way the study was done is kind of like with statin therapy early on is that a lot of people were excluded, and we don't know why. We don't know anything about them. And so when statins were finally released into the general population, a lot of side effects started to show up that weren't in the study because the study was so limited uh, in the kind of people that were actually eligible to take the drug or tolerated the drug. So we don't know why uh, people are excluded, um, but we do with uh, just about every other drug. Once it comes out, you start to see a lot more side effects. So um, it's something that, you know, even though there's not much treatment for Alzheimer's, uh, once it's diagnosed, I still would be very, very leery and cautious about getting involved with this medication. Um, the next similar study looked at peripheral vascular disease and claudication. Um, and 
basically the, it, the number of studies and the number of vascular studies that are done are increasing. But again, Medicare's reimbursement of outpatient procedurals for what we call peripheral stents, so stents to arteries in the lower leg, has, uh, it's very lucrative. Um, it's not been shown to uh, extend life. Uh, it's, it perhaps could be life-saving, limb-saving if you had a non-healing wound, but certainly no studies have shown an improvement in people that are asymptomatic. And the majority of these are done, so people um, may go for a physical, you know, that annual Medicare physical, and somebody tries to feel your pulse on top of your foot or behind your ankle bone, and they can't feel it, and they send you for a vascular study. And the vascular study uh, is abnormal, then you get sent for a CT angiogram, which could hurt your kidneys, but it could say that you have blockages in, your, in the arteries to your lower legs and that you need one of these stents to be done. So again, money for the procedures, and again, where you may not be symptomatic. The symptoms would be that if you walk, you get a cramping uh, in your leg muscles, and when you stop, it goes away. You start, it comes back, it goes away. And then it progresses just like angina in the heart that it starts to occur at rest. When things occur at rest, as well as exertion, not instead of, but as well as exertion, then that seems to be a progression of disease. So those will be symptomatic people. But if you don't have any symptoms, but you just have an abnormal test and you get sent for one of these stents, there's certainly a risk of, again, uh, kidney failure from the CT scans because of dye. Um, or worsening kidney function, uh, loss of limb uh, because of the stent uh, being, you know, a clot going distally, so you could lose your toe, your foot, um, or worsening function because you have a little artery and you're putting a stent in. If it's not deployed right or it doesn't sit well, then it can make things worse. And then now you do have symptoms, and of course you're going to need to be on blood thinner if you have a stent put in because you have to keep the stent from clotting. So you can see where... Um, Again, we need to use our head in the medical, uh, the medical field. One thing you can do uh, if you have uh, vascular disease is what you would do if you had coronary artery disease is you eat nitric oxide-producing greens, kale, arugula, cabbage, napa, squish chard, beets, beet greens. You know the drill. Uh, and then go for a walk. So you eat the greens, you go for a walk, you get cramping, you stop, let it go, let it go away, you start again, and you slowly increase your walking ability, uh, and it works. It works because you increase nitric oxide production that dilate the collateral vessels, so you go around the obstruction. The nitric oxide will actually eat away at the plaque over time. It can become calcified and then settle down so it's not hurting as bad uh, or not causing as much problem. You develop the collateral vessels. Uh, and you have good blood flow to the lower foot, and you don't have to worry about it. So just because you don't have a dorsalis pedis or posterior tibial pulse, which are those pulses on the top of the foot and behind the ankle, does not mean that you're not getting good blood flow to your legs and your feet. Um, if you have hair on your legs or your feet, chances are your blood flow is good. If you start to not have hair on your lower legs or feet, you may not have good blood flow. Um, if you have hair on your legs and your feet, you should go walk and run. If you don't have hair on your legs, you should really go walk and run. Um, so walking is actually the best thing you can do for this. Uh, biking, not quite as much. Uh, you don't get quite as much blood flow, uh, but, but get walking. The next study that I wanted to talk about was looking at muscle fatigue and cardiorespiratory failure. Um, and 
I'm sorry, cardiorespiratory fatigue, not failure. So when you go out and you run a marathon or an ultra marathon, uh, certainly you're using the glycogen in your muscles and you, the more you use, they start to ache and they hurt and eventually uh, people slow or stop um, because they, uh, or slow down uh, because things start to hurt. Uh, and the question is, do you slow down because your cardiovascular system is starting to get fatigued or is it the muscles and how do they relate? And it turns out that your muscles are a kind of a, a throttle for, the, for your brain to say, hey, we better stop this because we're getting to the point where uh, we don't have, uh, you know, things are getting dangerous here and we're getting too fatigued. We don't have any energy left. We're going to get hurt. Uh, so that in turn puts feedback to your heart saying, okay, we're going to increase your heart rate, increase your breathing rate. So you feel fatigued and you slow down. So it's a pretty cool interaction to all this, how our brains sort of communicate to the rest of our body that we should slow down. And so I guess, you know, from my perspective, how do you make it not happen? And, and really, um, you know, the key is not only cardiovascular training, but more importantly, perhaps muscle training. So strength training, which I'll be incorporating more for my upcoming hundreds, uh, to, to get strong muscles, more mitochondria, um, so that your muscles can produce uh, uh, or utilize the energy that you're feeding them. And of course, nutrition strategies to keep the glycogen coming in. Uh, your body is able to metabolize only as fast as uh, you can uptake the glucose, but the more you do it, the better you get. So muscular training is actually going to uh, be helpful for people as well. So again, walking more duration, uh, walking longer, doing strength training are ways to get, to get by with that. So uh, I thought that those, those things were, were um, very, very interesting when you kind of look um, at some of these patterns that, that you know, keep people doing what they want to do. But then it comes down to what do you want to do and how do you want to perceive things? Again, I've watched these ultra marathons and read stories that are very motivating to me that despite great setbacks, people do great things. And I also encounter people that are very limited by the stories that they tell themselves or their past history. And it's almost like, um, you know, some people look at, well, what if something happens versus why not me? Why can't I do something? And I, I think that comes back to, you know, belief is powerful both in a positive and a negative aspects. And it comes from patterns that we, that we practice and that we live, circuits that we run in our brain that tell us, you know, to be fearful or to go for it. Um, and I, I think people can change, but you have to be aware of, of the patterns uh, you know, we tend to do things that affirm our, our beliefs. If we think we're sick, we look for more things to find that support that, yes, we're not well, things that could potentially be wrong. And we spend so much time looking for things that are wrong that we, we don't get to enjoy all that is right. Um, you know, so I have people that are always getting assessed for possibilities of things that go wrong. I think it leads to, a, especially in today's culture, of over-testing, over-evaluation. Some of the tests, again, just like the peripheral vascular disease, have side effects and lead to perhaps more illness. So it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you think something might happen, if you look long enough, you might actually find something. The question is, what, what can you do about it? 
Um, you know, people in my family died young. I've said it before. Uh, my grandparents died at a very young age. Um, and I can take that belief that, you know, chances are something bad's going to happen to me at a young age. Or I can take the belief that I'm going to do something to prolong my life or to do something different from what they've done. Um, you know, as opposed to going down this road of, well, I might as well just do what I want because I can't affect the outcome. I certainly believe that you can affect the outcome. Um, and sitting around waiting for the shoe to drop, I don't believe is a, is a good way to, you know, uh, to, to wait for things to happen. So, um, you know, so I, yes, I have perhaps bad genetics, but I'm not going to keep living in a way that my grandparents lived. I'm not going to smoke and be overweight and eat bad foods. We're just waiting for something bad to happen. So I want to be proactive in doing something, um, that can perhaps change my outcome. And the biggest thing that we can do is our food, um, you know, so changing to a plant-based diet. And, you know, um, I get the I'm 90% there or I'm 66% there or I'm 70% there. But it's, you know, what's, what outcome do you want? Do you want to be in control? Then you have to be dedicated to using that food as medicine. It's a short-acting medicine. It's not one that lasts for 24 hours. So that you have to be conscious of it all day long. Uh, to, to get what you want, you know, to be doing it. The other thing is to keep strong physically, um, you know. So uh, I guess going back to the nutrition one, you know, obviously taking charge of your food. It's not what your wife makes or your husband makes. It's not what the person in the restaurant makes. It's you're in charge of what goes into your food. Um, and assessing your progress, um, you know, what metrics do you have to be able to assess? Are you losing weight at the, uh, the speed that you want to? Is your cholesterol coming down at the speed you want to? Uh, is your fitness going up like you want to? Uh, test yourself. Uh, test yourself with those metrics. Test yourself physically. Um, you know, can I lift more than I did before? Can I walk longer or faster? Have a route? Can I get this far? Um, we tend to cut it short. People never come in and ask me, you know, how much can I exercise? It's usually how much can I eat or how much protein do I need or do I need more? But they never ask me, I need more exercise. How do I figure out how to get that? Um, so I, I, I think knowing, you know, looking at those extras, I, I, I always keep a calendar of what I've been doing. I can pull those calendars out year to year. I use a Garmin. Garmin Connect keeps those data year to year so I can see what I've done this month versus last month. You, you keep yourself honest by looking at things. Um, I had a, um, an, a discussion with someone about uh, David Goggins' books. Uh, one of the, uh, David Goggins' book, You Can't Hurt Me. Uh, if you don't know, David Goggins was an ex-Navy SEAL. Uh, he weighed close to 300 pounds. He's now lean. He does ultras. He's a tough man. He's got a potty mouth. Um, he's very blunt. Uh, you can do more than you think you can. You don't, uh, you don't tap into, you know, half of what you've got. But in one of his books, uh, he said, look in the mirror and what you see is what you are. It's not, you know, um, and how do you look in the mirror? If you see a fat person in the mirror, you're, you're fat. You need to address it. Um, I think some people look in the mirror and, or they don't look in the mirror or they don't look at the scale or they only look at parts that are good and don't assess the whole situation. And so I, I do think that we have to, as, you know, assess ourselves and, and, and kind of go on uh, and address those things.
a relative relayed that um, her husband had a small bowel obstruction and he hadn't eaten for five days and he was a thin guy to start with and he's, he looks so skinny and she's very, very worried about him. And it's like, you know, um, the small bowel obstruction was he had adhesion, so it wasn't cancer, so he had a surgery to correct it. Everything went well. But that five days of not eating and that weight loss, I said, that's a blessing. His system got cleaned out. Uh, he set his metabolic clock back for five days. Yeah, it was, you know, in painful situation with a small bowel obstruction, but we have such, um, our vision of what we see as normal and abnormal is so skewed in today's environment. Uh, people are so much heavier than they were. So, you know, some guy that was not overweight to start with that lost a little weight, he looks like, you know, he's death warmed over, as my family would say, uh, because he was thin. But actually that part of fasting made him better, let his body, gave his body time to heal. Um, people come into the office and it's like, let's just do a juice fast, a vegetable juice fast, or just eat vegetables. And it's very hard for them to follow or, or want to partake in that. But they say they can't lose weight and they can't do this and it can't happen. But if they do that vegetable juice fast or they just do vegetables and they really stick to it, the weight loss is guaranteed. They have time, their body has time to heal. They have time to observe their body and see what was getting in their way if they want to. Uh, and a lot of things are cured very quickly. You know, if you don't eat for a couple of days, your sodium level, you know, everything corrects itself. The blood pressure goes down. Inflammation in the body goes down. You actually can detox. Your skin can clear up. Your GI symptoms improve. Joints improve. There's clarity of your mind. But we're very, very worried about having some sort of a decreased caloric intake for a period of time. You know, so... I, just about anybody can do a juice fast. Um, obviously, you should see your doctor if you're on insulin or blood pressure medication because things are going to get better very, very quickly. But, you know, a, a quick reset for some people is a really good thing um, that you can start to see the forest for the trees. You know, everyone, of course, on Facebook and Instagram, you know, there's uh, everybody's a master chef, right? You know, it's what recipes, every website um, every nutrition website is about making these fancy uh, recipes. You know, I'm as guilty as anybody else. You post the plate of a really uh, nicely plated recipe that you come up with that looks really good. Um, but the reality of it is, you know, most master chefs aren't healthy at all. They're all overweight. Um, they add a bunch of butter and salt to things. So you'd be better off just seeing how simply you could eat for, you know, a period of time. If you're trying to transition to a plant-based diet and nobody around you is, then keep it simple. Do a potato, a vegetable, and beans. You know, keep it simple. Uh, just do all vegetables for a little bit. It won't hurt you. Potatoes have everything you need in them. You can do a potato and vegetables every night, and you would not become deficient. The reality of it is most of us have too much of and too much metabolic waste in our system that is causing problems. Um, you know, so there's, again, there's many more recipes posted than, than people actually, you know, doing something or pushing themselves. So I would encourage you to, to give that a, a shot. The last study uh, looked at cardiopulmonary fitness and cancer risk and mortality. And it was a Swedish study that looked at uh, survival and, and development of colon, prostate, and lung cancer. And uh, there were 177,709 people 
the average BMI was 26, so 25, 24.98 being normal. So they were overweight, but the average is not morbidly overweight. They were followed for 9.6 years, and they looked at their VO2 max by doing a bicycle stress test, and then they did questionnaires and follow-up on their lifestyle and their habits. And then they grouped the people with the highest VO2 max, oxygen consumption, your ability to take oxygen from your blood and use it in your muscles and in your cardiovascular fitness, the three highest group uh, tiers and the three lowest and compared them. And when they looked at cancer development of and cancer death, the people that had the higher three tiers of a VO2 max had much lower incidence of colon, prostate, and lung cancer and had a much better survival if they had the diagnosis of it. And, you know, people say, what VO max are we talking about? Uh, a lot of people have Garmin watches or, you know, have done a stress test or had some sort of a calculation of the VO2 max. The trend in this study started when the VO2 max was greater than 35, the, the trend to protection. So those with a VO2 max greater than especially 36, markedly started showing a market difference. If you really want to do something great, get that VO2 max over 40. Um, so you want to push that VO2 max in the 40s as best you can. The older you get, the harder it is because you lose heart rate and, and a few of the calculations. But... If you can keep that VO2 max high, that's what you're looking for. So how do you do it? Uh, and really, it's pretty easy to get your VO2 max up. It comes down to prolonged training. So if you can go out four to five days a week and you can walk uh, at a pretty good clip, uh, but keep in zone two, so we're talking about um, 65 70% of your predicted maximal heart rate um, for about 80% of the time, you'll increase your VO2 max. So just get out and do it. And the duration. So you have to do the duration, uh, but at a nice, easy conversational pace. If you want to push it up even more, about 20% of the time, you'll do some intervals, but they don't have to be marked. So you're really going to push it to your huffing and puffing for about three minutes, four minutes, and then recover for four minutes and do that a couple times. Alternatively, you could do you know majority of your hour and a half walk and then push it at the end for three or four minutes. You'll increase it that way. You don't want to do the intervals early. You want to do the pushing your heart rate and your um, you know your the the um, effort at the end, not the beginning. So you're going to do majority easy, and at the end rev it, rev the engine up a little bit. Uh, there was an older guy that ran uh, ultras well into his 70s, and he said he used to always rev the engine on the way in the way in. So the last, you know, a uh, couple minutes, um, four or five minutes of your exercise, then you increase increase what you're doing. Obviously, you're going to do that uh, again. This is not medical advice under the direction of your doctor, or you can join our practice, and we'll help you do it. DrDelaney.com. You can figure out how to join it. We can help you do that from anywhere. We even have a level two membership that will get you a plan to do that. So uh, we'd love to help you increase your VO2 max, decrease your risk of cancer, and increase your longevity. It's also, uh, again, you're, the more higher your VO2 max, the better your longevity in general. Um, but, um, you know, you're trying to get that into the 40s if you possibly can.
There's a lot of things that happen to us lifestyle diseases that we actually have a whole lot of control on, and certainly cardiovascular disease is one of them, and cancer is, is one of them. But the most simple one that we all ignore is hypertension. So people get put on blood pressure medicines and they go on their merry way and they don't think anything about it and they continue to eat and drink as they want and then their blood pressure goes up and they get another medicine and they get another medicine and some of the medicine may be diuretics that make them pee more, or maybe make them pee their pants, become impotent, um, dizzy, um, you know, a whole host, increase your risk of diabetes perhaps, but um, there's, there's certainly side effects to blood pressure medicine, but they work. So if you're not going to do anything and your blood pressure is high, we know that if your blood pressure is greater than 130 over 70 for a prolonged period of time, your increased cardiovascular risk goes up. What point do you have to go to the hospital um, if you have symptoms? So people's blood pressure, if they're over 200 and you have a headache or you can't see or you have chest pain or shortness of breath, you got to go to the hospital to get that one fixed right away, some IV medications. But before then, you're in control. You can, you can fix it. Um, you know, you can take the medicine. Obviously, you can't just cold turkey stop your medicine because your body gets used to it. Um, your heart rate can go up. Your blood pressure can go up paradoxically, just cold turkey medication. So they have to be weaned for the most part. But what you can do if you're not on medications or you're trying to get your blood pressure down, uh, number one is nutrition. So nitric oxide producing foods dilate your blood vessel. Um, not doing oils that cause inflammation and blood vessel constriction keeping your sodium low, less than 1,500 milligrams a day. Some people might get away with a little bit more salt when they go out. If they're very hydrated before, it seems to be less of a factor than if they go out and they eat salt and then they try to hydrate after. Um, weight, the bigger you are, the harder it is for your, blood, your heart to pump, so the blood vessels start to constrict to get blood flow to them. Sleep apnea, which is often corrected with weight loss, so your, your blood pressure often goes up with sleep apnea as well. Breathing, again, it part, becomes part of that. If you breathe diaphragmatically, so with your diaphragm, you stimulate the vagal nerve that slows your blood pressure down, slows your heart rate down. So if you get yourself all in a tiz, it's going to make your blood pressure go high for a lot of people. Some people have more sympathetic tone, more adrenaline with getting nervous than other people do. And exercise. When you exercise, it's normal for your blood pressure to go up. If you do a stress test and your blood pressure uh, may very well go to 200 systolic during it, um, if it goes over 220, we consider that an abnormal blood pressure response. So you can see we'll drive your blood pressure up when you exercise. The beauty of exercise is when you stop, your blood pressure comes down and it stays down for a prolonged period of time and you decrease inflammation in your blood vessels. So exercise is an extremely important event if you have high blood pressure and you want to get it down. Um, so, and normalizing your body mass. So breathing, nutrition, hydration, getting your weight under control, exercising. So that's really um, the key to getting blood pressure under control. Some people take longer than others. You know, if you've got a lot of vascular disease, um, if, you know, old habits die hard, it takes, it, it takes a while. Um, blood pressure cuffs aren't always accurate. Sometimes they overread by 30 points. So, you know, check it with a manual cuff with your doctor. Um, sometimes repeatedly taking it starts to drive people's blood pressure up because they become so nervous. So taking the time out, doing some breath work, meditation, um, or desensitizing yourself to taking your blood pressure so that it's not such a all-or-nothing event uh, that drives your blood pressure, you know. So those are a few tips uh, to decrease your lifestyle events.
Takeaway, stay strong, exercise, eat right. That's a surprise, right? Anybody knows it. Everybody knows it. It's just a matter of doing it, to do it one step at a time. Again, if you'd like to hear more from about our practice, go to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y. Uh, you can email me at jamie, J-A-M-I, at, drdelaney, at drdelaney.com. Have a nice evening.